0: Pushkin.
1: You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
2: It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth?
3: I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern,
2: and this is Deep Cover... The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.
0: From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. For more than a year, we've been hearing about the idea of herd immunity. In recent weeks though, it's become very clear that the United States is not in the foreseeable future going to reach the threshold for herd immunity. There are a range of reasons and causes for this, and they go from vaccine hesitancy to the contagiousness of new variants and beyond to the underlying science. As a consequence, we're all trying to figure out what this means for what happens next. Will COVID become a manageable, self-contained disease not unlike the common cold? Will it alternatively develop new variants that require us to go back to the drawing board and develop new vaccines? Or will it be something in between? To help us understand these pressing questions, we're joined by Dr. Mark Lipsitch, our go-to COVID expert here on the program and, indeed, throughout the country. Mark is a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. He's affiliated both with the epidemiology department and with the Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease. He runs the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at Harvard. Regular listeners of the podcast will know that Mark was one of the first voices anywhere in the United States, or indeed in the world, drawing attention to the future trajectory of COVID-19. He joined us as early as February 2020 to tell us where the disease was going to go, and he's managed to join us intermittently ever since, taking time out of his extraordinarily busy schedule to set us right about where COVID is, where it's been, and where it's going. Mark, thank you, as always, for joining us. In general, I've tried to keep you as a guest reserved for those moments when something really important seems to be shifting in the trajectory of COVID-19. And news reports suggest that maybe we're getting there at this moment as well, and that that's something that has to do with our acknowledgement, finally, that herd immunity may not be coming our way in the United States in the foreseeable future, something you have been warning about really almost from the start. So I want to start by just asking you to remind us all for definitional purposes of what herd immunity is defined in terms of R0, the replication rate of the virus.
4: Sure. I think what you're asking is about the herd immunity threshold, and I'll come back to that distinction in a minute because I think it's actually helpful to talk about it. But the herd immunity threshold is defined as that level of immunity in the population from whatever means, usually infection or prior infection or vaccination or a combination, that it can't spread widely because there are so many immune people that chains of transmission don't sustain themselves and they fizzle out before the virus can spread too far. That is quantified by the basic reproductive rate or basic reproductive number R0, R0, which is the number of secondary cases that each case creates, and when everyone is susceptible. And when you do a little bit of algebra with that expression and try to find the level of immunity where instead of infecting, say, three or four other people, the average case infects less than one other person, meaning the number of cases is going to go down over time. If you do the math, you end up getting that the proportion that have to be immune is one minus the reciprocal of that number, R0. So one minus one over R0. And so to, to give some examples, if R0 is three, then that's two thirds. If R0 is four, that's three quarters.
0: You've been saying ever since people started talking about the possibility of herd immunity being created partly through uh, the spread of vaccines, that it would be optimistic, I think that's the word you used, to actually imagine we could get there. As I understand some public statements that you've made recently, including to the New York Times, you're now willing to shift a little bit from it's unlikely that we'll get there to it seems extraordinarily improbable that we're going to get there in the foreseeable future in the U.S., at least not through vaccinations, as opposed to vaccinations plus natural infections. What has shifted uh, your empirical observation? I don't think your your theory has changed, but what has caused your empirical observation to evolve to that point?
4: Well, I think I I do want to now mention the concept that herd immunity and the and that threshold are slightly different. The threshold is the point where there is so much herd immunity that we don't have ongoing transmission when we return to normal behavior. Herd immunity is a quantity; it's between zero and one, and we are getting more and more of it. So we are getting herd, some herd immunity, but my statements have been about whether we're going to reach a level of immunity that means that we can expect zero or nearly zero transmission despite pre-pandemic types of behavior.
0: So first of all, thanks for that clarification because I, and I think most other non-scientists have been using the term herd immunity when what we should have been saying is the threshold of herd enough immunity, herd immunity
4: essentially. enough herd yeah.
0: immunity. So. You could say, well, right, it's like the blueness of the blue thing. It could be very faintly blue and it would still be blue. But the question is, how blue do you need it to be for whatever your purpose is? Right. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. That's important.
4: That's important for, I mean, everybody is, including scientists, are sometimes sloppy about using herd immunity as shorthand for the threshold. The reason I try to be very careful about it is that herd immunity is a good thing. Even a little bit is good and a little more is a little better. And being below the threshold does not mean it's not doing any work. It is doing a lot of work. So that's actually some of the good news, is that we are building up a lot of herd immunity. And the reason, to answer now your question, the the reason why I think it's extremely unlikely that we will get to the threshold in the United States is a few things. One is, when we started out, we had no data on whether these vaccines were protective against infection and a transmission. And that's the part of vaccine effectiveness that matters to herd immunity. If everybody gets a tetanus shot, that doesn't protect the next person from getting tetanus because it doesn't do anything to transmission of the bacteria which come from the soil. If the vaccine isn't stopping transmission, then it, but it's just stopping disease, it's not doing anything for herd immunity. These vaccines do a lot for herd immunity. Initially, it was unclear how much the first number I think that was meaningful that came out was 61%, um, but that was from one dose and probably an underestimate for technical reasons that aren't that interesting for the Moderna vaccine. And now the numbers have come out through various sources of evidence. It's still uncertain, but it seems like it's probably somewhere between about 60 and 90%, probably 70 and 90% protective against uh, the process of transmission. So that's really good news, but but it's not 100%, and that distinction matters because to get to the herd immunity threshold, we have to cut transmission to one, minus one one over zero, not, not just vaccinate that number of people. So the, more, the closer to 100% effective the vaccine is, the, the more we can interchange how many people have been vaccinated and how many people are totally immune, but we can't totally do that yet.
0: It's because we have to multiply one by the other, right? The question yep. is not how many people have the vaccine, and it's not how much does the vaccine do, it's how much does the vaccine do for the number of people who have been vaccinated? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so, good. So we now understand that number, and though it's surprisingly good, 70 to 90%, it's still not going to get us necessarily where we need to go when you consider it as a percentage of all of the people who have been vaccinated, which is the part that's not so high. Right. Right.
4: So the other bit of good news that that makes it easier to get close to the threshold is that children really don't seem to be as important for transmission. And so that one minus one over R0 is an average. and, And as you learn more about the population, if you leave out some of the people from vaccination who are less important to transmission, that matters less than leaving out people who are more important to transmission. So that probably buys us a little bit of margin.
0: How far do those numbers go, Mark, on on kids not being involved in transmission? And the reason this is relevant is one of the conversations that I've heard repeated a lot um, among all kinds of people is people say, well, I'm vaccinated, but my kids aren't vaccinated. And so I'm worried that there is some possibility that I might transmit to them or that they may transmit to me. And even though they wouldn't get that sick, most probably they would nevertheless transmit it. And so if the number of kids not transmitting is relatively high, then that worry is much less salient.
4: It seems to increase with age. So, uh, A 15-year-old is probably effectively an adult from SARS-CoV-2's perspective, roughly Mm -hmm. speaking. And a five-year-old is definitely considerably less. I'd say that's the sort of rough picture. Okay. So those are the bits of good news, mostly. The bits of bad news that make it unlikely that, say, the United States will quickly get to the herd immunity threshold are, first, that variants are more contagious than the original strain of SARS-CoV-2. So everyone agreed pretty much that the original strain had a reproductive number of about two and a half or three. I think that might've been too simple and maybe it's higher in some places, but let's say for the sake of argument, it was two and a half or three. The B117 variant that's now very common in many parts of the world is thought to be about 50% more contagious, more transmissible. So that pushes it up to maybe four and a half. And so that pushes the herd immunity threshold close to 80%. Um, so that means that say we need say it's 75%, say we need to immunize 75% of the population and, and say that the vaccine is 80% blocking of transmission, then we need to get very close to whatever 75 divided by 80 is. So very close to 100% coverage in the population. In order to reach that threshold. And given the combination of hesitancy, poor access, which I think are two sides of the same coin, and so far not vaccinating children under 16, soon it will probably be under 12, I think it's just very hard to imagine getting to that level.
0: So now let's turn to what this means in practical terms. There are a few different dimensions. Let's start by thinking about modeling, which is one of the things that you do for a living and that you've done so skillfully in this entire epidemic process. When you think about what models might look plausible for how the current COVID virus is going to proceed under circumstances where we're not at the threshold of herd immunity, What's the modeling space, as it were? What are the possibilities that you that you see as most plausible?
4: Yeah. I think the most plausible scenario, not the only plausible one, but really the most plausible one is one that was described in science in a paper by uh, Rustamantia and Jenny Levine and Atar Bjornstad. And what they do is essentially make an analogy to other coronaviruses. So the the most important difference probably between this coronavirus and other ones is that everyone in the world has been infected with the other coronaviruses many times by the time they're, say, a teenager. And so people get infected over and over and it just circulates. They just circulate.
0: And those are mostly, they're not all of the common cold viruses, but they are within the family of common cold viruses.
4: They're justifiably obscure except to virologists because they don't make people very sick. And so I think a very likely outcome is that this one behaves similarly and that what vaccines are going to do for us is to get us over the hump of the period in history, namely the one we're living through, where there are a lot of people who would get very sick from a first exposure to this virus. And everybody's getting first exposures because it's a new virus. And therefore, that's a bad combination. If the vaccines can be used to put us in a position where nobody is getting uh, or few people are getting exposed for the first time when they are also old or have comorbid conditions, then the vaccines will have prevented a lot of illness and death. And then it's quite possible that the residual circulation of the virus among the people who aren't vaccinated or among the um, people in whom the vaccine immunity slowly wanes is going to give us longer term protection against severe disease. So that five years from now, you and I and our children and our parents will have probably been infected by the coronavirus if we don't continue to vaccinate very heavily for the next five years. But we won't, it won't bother us because we will have all been vaccinated once and or had it before at an age when we were not, not likely to get very sick and so it will behave much like the other coronaviruses.
0: So the good news part of that is that, at least over time, that describes a kind of normalization where childhood infection is protective in a lot of good and healthy ways. I assume the downside of that is that among those who are not vaccinated and who are more vulnerable, a substantial number of people who have not been vaccinated among that class of people could get very sick and even die in the next, let's say, five years, who would not if they were vaccinated?
4: Right. So, the public health goal, if that scenario is going to play out, is to vaccinate as many of the people known to be at high risk as possible, and probably also as many of the other people as possible in order to sh- slow down transmission and just give people's immune systems a chance to catch up. If that scenario plays out, then the vaccines are sort of a bridge to a more peaceful future rather than something we have to do all the time.
0: So that's the vaccine as bridge scenario, and it's it's not so bad relative to the other possibilities, and you think it's the most probable, so that's good news. Talk to us about some of the other possibilities.
4: Well, the other possibilities would be that, that immunity to severe disease from the vaccine and or from natural infection is not long-lasting, either because the immune effectors wane over time or because the virus changes and is not as strongly affected by the immunity or both. And so then it's a sort of more ongoing war because we have to keep trying to protect people from infection, not only from their first infection, but from their second, third, fourth infections. And that is is possible. I think infection immunity very likely will wane. But The question is whether there is this long term, relatively long term immunity that gets you from infection to infection and then gets boosted again against getting really sick.
0: So that's one of the two sub possibilities that you just described that infection immunity itself wanes, whether from natural infection or from the vaccine. And as you say, whether that's a disaster or not really depends on whether the virus is circulating in enough quantity that you can get a natural booster from being exposed. But then there's the possibility that you mentioned that there might actually be an evolutionary process in which the virus evolves to the point where it is vaccine-resistant. And I guess what I want to ask you about is you've done plenty of modeling of other viruses that have evolved to be vaccine-resistant, presumably, and there are lots of bacteria where where that where this has happened over time, where there's pretty good data, I think, on trying to figure out that. And so there must be familiar and available models to you when you think about vaccine resistance. Is there any way to think intelligently about the probability of something like that happening?
4: Yeah. I mean, flu certainly is is the sort of classic example of a viral infection that changes over time to resist our natural immunity. And at the same time, it happens to also escape from existing vaccines. And that's why we keep changing the flu vaccine. So I think that's the, that's the example or the analog. Um, the viruses are different and they evolve differently. And I'm not sure how to put a probability of sort of s- how far the virus this virus can go in escaping our immunity. It's like we've chased it down an alley and the question is at the end of that alley, is there a brick wall and it's stuck and we've got it? It's escaped as far as it can escape and now there's nowhere more for it to go? Or is there a big vista of other things for it to do? and i don't i don't know any way to put probabilities on that i think the best way to to know it probably would be to try to do it in the lab and see where it goes from the variants we've already seen uh, which is itself a somewhat dangerous thing to do but probably a very valuable one
0: that's a fascinating topic which <laughs> i would like to come to in just a second but, but before we do I'm sort of surprised to hear you say that there isn't a kind of ability to make a prediction about probabilities of evolution, especially in light of the fact that we've now observed the virus evolving pretty quickly with respect to the variants that are that are out there. I mean, is there no? I guess there isn't really a way to extrapolate from the the virus's capacity to evolve to evolve these new variants that are more capable of an infection than the kind before. To extrapolate from that to whether it would be able to evolve in ways that would escape the vaccine?
4: Well, I think there are a few things. One is it can mutate. I mean, it, it's generating mutations all the time, and the existing variants are generating new variants that are more different from the original strain than the, say, B117 1. 1. itself. So B117 1. 1. is making new versions of itself that are further mutated. So that's not in doubt. That's just RNA viruses do that. The question is, what will the impact be on escaping our immune responses? And even for the existing variants, that remains a little bit unclear. It is very clear that they escape neutralizing antibodies to varying degrees, depending on the variant you're talking about. But whether that means that they totally escape our ability to control them, that that's mostly unobserved and still being documented so so they can change that's not in doubt but whether they can change in ways that really get around to a large degree our ability to to fight them off with our antibodies and other forms of immunity i think is still an open question even for the existing say B1351 the south african variant or the brazilian variant or the indian variant so that's the question it's not whether they can evolve it's whether how far can they go in in their biological properties.
0: And that's something that you can't really answer mostly because evolution is not a perfectly modelable process, right? I mean, it has contingent features and, you know, there aren't necessarily absolute rules that will tell you in relation to both the the underlying biology and then the way it interacts with the world outside, what's going to happen. If it were, we could do a lot more predictive work on evolution than we actually are able to do.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a number of us, including our group with bacteria, trying to chip away at this problem, but this is a major hard problem in biology, and we aren't there yet. We don't know what the space of possibilities is and how it relates to the sequence.
0: Talk to me about what in the real world it would look like in this scenario, where let's call it the flu-like scenario. If we started with the vaccines as a bridge, this is the flu-like scenario where we have to go back and try to get a new vaccine each time a dangerous new variant emerges. Why do we do as poorly as we do with respect to the flu vaccine, which I guess only prevents about 40 to 60% of the flu each time it's re-devised?
4: Yeah, it's a a good question. I think that in itself is a scientific discussion that that isn't totally resolved, why the flu vaccines have been so hard to make as (laughs) good as, say, these existing coronavirus vaccines. Partly, it's about predicting which sequence to use, but even when it's well-matched, it's not always very good. So I think there's some reason for optimism here that the first guess at what to do about a coronavirus vaccine turned out to be as much as 95% effective, and that's much better than flu vaccines. So it may be that coronaviruses are easier, but this coronavirus may continue to change and then Again, the question is whether it changes in a way that evades our infection immunity, which would mean that we have to consider trying to control it, or whether it evades our severe disease immunity, which would be a much bigger deal. And what I mean by that is if we didn't have flu vaccines, as most of the world doesn't use flu vaccines, there are people, many people who die because they don't get flu vaccines, but it is not the same kind of global catastrophe as this has been. And that's because existing immunity to flu, even though the flu viruses are changing, is still protecting people to a large degree against getting very sick and dying. So the, the sort of flu analogy is a worse scenario, and we probably would try to make better vaccines that keep up with the new strains, but it's still not a new pandemic every year. It's in the realm of public health problem rather than public health catastrophe. We'll be right back.
3: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Listen to The unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Company.
2: It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth?
3: I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern,
2: and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.
0: Mark, when you see the virus running, maybe unchecked is the wrong word, but running hard and fast through a population that seems to be happening right now in India, apart from the understandable concern about the human suffering that that's going to entail, do you think to yourself, oh boy, that raises the probability of new variants emerging that could be ultimately vaccine resistant? Or do you think rather, look, this is what the, the virus was always going to do, if not restrained, and people are catching it. And so there's no particular reason to think that it would need to evolve new forms of resistance because, after all, it's it's spreading successfully through the population with whichever variant that it presently has.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fairly central principle of evolution that large populations give rise to more variation and select the most fit variants more effectively than small populations. Mm-hmm. And in infections, that means... Lots of infected people are both more of a breeding ground and more of an efficient filter for variants that are good at transmitting. So having a virus spreading widely is, in any place is not good for any, any place else, even places that have vaccine access. And that is one of many reasons why trying to help India to control the virus is in the interest of other countries in addition to being the humanitarian thing to do. When
0: you're wearing your public health recommendations hat, what sensible recommendations do you think policy regulators should be considering, leaving aside the question of whether they can practically be adopted or not, for a world where the virus seems to be more or less calming down in places with relatively higher vaccination rates, while it's simultaneously spreading pretty rapidly through places in the world which have very low vaccination rates. I mean, what's the picture of what kinds of opening are appropriate and what kinds aren't? And can we really sustain and tolerate a world where you know, Westerners would be saying, well, in our countries where we've got a reasonable amount of vaccination, we're more or less are reopening, but we're urging you, India, Brazil, you know, we're urging you to engage in serious lockdowns. I mean, so first of all, is that the sensible thing to be saying to them? And second of all, is it plausibly sustainable to say that even if even if it's
4: true? Uh, well, that's way way above my pay grade. I mean, I think in reality, it is the decision of the countries what to do. And if we're not forthcoming as a global community with aid to Blunt the impacts of having to close your societies and vaccine doses in the quantities that would make them make the rest of the world able to close. Speaking as a sort of citizen and and someone who's married to a philosopher, <laughs> I would say uh, that seems very unfair to say you know our public health is at risk because of your virus. So why don't you close your society down? I think there are many things in between neglecting and telling people what to do. But I don't think that our desire to keep variants from emerging is or should be a very compelling argument to countries that are not receiving or able to generate on their own the resources to control the virus in a humane way.
0: I mean, I don't think it would be framed that way. It would be framed as, look, you still have not that many people vaccinated, so you should be engaging in the same kinds of lockdowns as we were engaged in until now. I mean, that—that that is presumably the line, coupled with, um, and by the way, we'll give you more vaccines or we'll enable you to make more vaccines.
4: Yeah, this is where I think as a scientist, I find myself at a bit of a loss because these are not really scientific problems. These really are problems of global equity and disparate impact. And I think I I will pass on trying to solve that.
0: Fair enough. I mean, I I guess what I wanted to say is that they are classically social scientific questions in that, well, they of course require some normative assessment, but that normative assessment, you know, of what we ought to do is based a little bit on facts. Um, But in any case, I won't press you. Let me ask one more question, Mark, before I close by going back to your mention of lab experiments. And the question is basically this, When you look at where the U.S. is now and where it plausibly will be, you know, in the next six months as we vaccinate 12 to 15-year-olds, how much um, prophylactics should remain in place in in your view? I mean, at what point will it be plausible to say, we no longer need to mask up when we're indoors, or we no longer need to maintain social distancing in schools?
4: I think that is a great question. (laughs) I think what's going to happen is that we're going to sort of feel our way in that direction. And there's going to be a lot of variation across any given rich country in how fast people go. And we'll get some sense from those experiments, those non, you know, non-planned experiments as to what works. I mean, in trying to frame how to think about it, I would say the goal is that when, uh, there are very, very few people at high risk still in the line of the virus and unvaccinated, then permitting more spread is a much safer thing to do. It's not totally safe, but it becomes a reasonable trade-off with uh, the fact that we all want to have economic, social, educational, and cultural lives back. But to give a number at this stage, I'm not really sure. I mean, i in some ways, one of the more optimistic or the most optimistic de- information is coming out of Israel right now in the sense that they have... When you talk to people, really reopened to a striking degree and their cases continue to go down and their hospitalizations and, and deaths to stay at low levels. And they have not gotten anywhere close to the what seems to be the herd immunity threshold. And so to me, that's... To go back to our earlier discussion, that might be the the, um, evidence that some of these concerns are, are overblown, that we can actually control spread with little bit lower levels of vaccination. But what I think is also happening in Israel, as I understand it, is that if you're vaccinated, you have lots of opportunities to go to the theater and to go to crowded indoor events and whatever. And if you are unvaccinated, you have fewer of those privileges and and or you might well be someone who was in a high risk group for infection before and are benefiting from natural immunity. So I'm wondering to what extent Israel really is an example of reopening and to what extent it's partial reopening. But I think they will set a pace that we can sort of watch and see what works and what doesn't.
0: Mark, before I let you go, you made an intriguing comment about the scientific value of doing in-lab experiments and trying to see what happens to COVID-19 in the lab. And obviously, there's a lot of nervousness around this, especially given the ongoing belief, I don't know if I would call it a paranoid fantasy or not, that might be too strong a formulation, but the ongoing, let's call it unsubstantiated belief among some that perhaps COVID-19 originated itself in a, in a lab and then unintentionally escape from that lab. Um, how much could real laboratory based responsible, careful research reveal and what would make it worth doing given the presumably existing risks of an accidental leak or outbreak? Uh,
4: well, I think the, the, The beliefs on all theories or all hypotheses for the origin are unsubstantiated right now. And I've said publicly and continue to say that I think investigating the lab leak hypothesis is the responsible thing to do, as has, for example, the head of the World Health Organization, the group that put out the report downplaying that theory.
0: That's quite helpful, actually, by the way. So what I'm reading in code is that people like me shouldn't say, oh, that's crazy. It, it might or might not be. We don't have the, the data.
4: Yeah. It's not crazy. It, it might be wrong, but the arguments put out so far to say that that a lab leak is, is way less likely than the competing hypothesis, I think don't hold any water.
0: Very right. good to hear. Okay. So that, that's a very helpful corrective.
4: <laughs> but to answer your specific question, I spent much of the decade of the 2010s, working very hard in the sort of science policy arena on an effort to curtail experiments, so called gain of function of concern experiments, that make, it, at that time, it was mostly influenza viruses more contagious or more deadly. And the basis of that concern or of that activity was a calculation of risk and benefit that the science doesn't. Save enough lives in in expectation to be worth the possibility of creating a novel pandemic pathogen that could get out of a lab by mistake and spread. Not to mention the possibility of aiding deliberate attempts. The, the possibility that that experiments like dangerous experiments could also aid deliberate attempts to misuse biological agents as weapons. But I was focused more on the on the safety aspect, um, and. One of the people who was in some ways supportive of my efforts uh, and those of my other colleagues was Jesse Bloom, who was one of the several groups that did experiments with this coronavirus to see what would happen when you asked the virus to escape human serum, to escape the immunity in human serum, uh, the antibody immunity in human serum. And what they found was that you generate mutations, very much the ones that we have been seeing in the variants that have become globally famous, for example, the E484K mutation. And that was incredibly valuable information because it allowed vaccine developers to understand that this was not just a freak that some that happened in one or two variants, but was actually the sort of typical thing that happens even in a laboratory. And, and other mutations were also identified. So you could ask the question, would it be a good idea to now take the existing variants that, that, that have those mutations and do that again? I would very much expect that people are doing those experiments as we speak, if they haven't already done them. And in this case, I would be supportive of doing that kind of potentially dangerous experiment because first, it has a very clear public health rationale that it's not just scientific curiosity that would be satisfied, but it would help to prepare us for vaccination and other, other countermeasures. And also that we have a big problem in front of us. It's not that the virus being created there is utterly novel. The analog of that experiment is being done in people's bodies around the world. So I think the, the, the incremental risk of doing the experiment is smaller and the incremental benefit of doing it is greater than those other experiments that I was very much against.
0: That's extremely helpful. You've given us some, some good news and some bad news, and as always, you're the soul of balance. Can I ask you, if you think back to where we were in February of 2020, is the overall picture worse than you thought it was gonna be, slightly better than you thought it was gonna be, more or less the same?
4: Well, I'll give you a balanced answer. Uh, so the the part that is much better than I think anybody believed was possible in February of last year is that we have, in large parts of the world, though not enough of the world, substantial supplies of very effective vaccines. I mean, I saw a prediction from April from a university uh, research group that said absolute best case scenario. As of April last year was that we would be beginning around now to start rolling out vaccines. And we began rolling out vaccines four or five months ahead of that. And the vaccines are not just 50% effective, which was the floor set by the FDA, but up to 95% effective. That's all just stunningly good news. And to be fair, part of the reason for that good news is that the US, Brazil, and the UK created a global public good by having rampaging epidemics that allowed vaccine trials to go quickly. And the whole world has us to thank for not controlling our virus very well, with the consequence that we were able to get quick answers about how well the vaccines worked. So that part, I think, is is much better than expected. I think the speed with which variants have come up is a little worse than expected. And the fact that they probably do have significant consequences for immunity, even if they don't totally defeat it. And then the, the most confusing part is in February, everybody was saying that the sorts of disparities we see within rich countries where the worst off are hit harder by the virus would be true globally and that, the, that Sub-Saharan Africa, India, et cetera, basically the global South would be hit much harder and it would be a catastrophe. And then that didn't happen for the first year or so, and everyone started scratching their head trying to understand whether it was a reporting artifact or not true, or really was true, and if so, why? And now we see South Asia, not just India, but its neighbors as well, really, really struggling under a renewed epidemic. And I would say that part is just puzzling and sort of gives a a real humility to scientists who thought we understood what would happen then it turned out not to happen and now it's turned out to happen a year after everybody else and i just i can't explain it
0: mark thank you as always for your clarity your rationality your judgment and for putting us in the picture i'm really grateful to you
4: thank you it's nice to talk as ever <music>
0: Dr. Mark Lipsich is always the reasonable man. He gives you the good news as well as the bad news. And in this conversation with him, he gave us a reasonable dose of each. To start with, his top line observation is that we are really not going to reach the threshold for herd immunity in the United States in the foreseeable future. Mark had warned of that possibility, indeed that probability, over the last year plus. And now he says that it's pretty certain that that's the outcome that we've reached. What does that mean in practice? Mark lays out several scenarios. The first, which he thinks is the most likely and is not a bad scenario as these things go at all, is that vaccines function as a bridge for us, protecting those people who would be badly harmed by a first exposure to the coronavirus, while simultaneously allowing young people to be exposed to the virus for the first time at an age where it's very, very unlikely to harm them. As a consequence, we would all eventually develop our own immunities to the coronavirus, and over time, assuming that we are exposed frequently enough without it harming us, COVID-19 would become very much like other coronaviruses out there in the world, but not much remarked because not doing anybody very much harm. Yet Mark also recognizes the possibility of another much more worrisome scenario, in which either The immunity that we get from being exposed to the vaccine or to the virus doesn't last very long, or still worse, in which the virus mutates and evolves to a point where it escapes the vaccines that we have for it. In those circumstances, COVID-19 would start to look a lot more like the flu. And as we know, our flu vaccines are a bit of a challenge because they face a moving target in addressing the flu as it evolves each year, And as a result, they don't successfully suppress the flu. Given that COVID can be much more harmful than the flu, that is a genuinely worrisome scenario. Ultimately, even when I pressed Mark to be a little less balanced, he gave us the reasonable balanced analysis that says that in certain respects, we've done much better in this vaccine than anyone could have expected. But in other respects, we've done really pretty badly, especially with reference to the fairness and justice of where the disease has harmed people and where it's likely to continue to harm people going forward into the future. My main takeaway from listening to Mark now and in the past is that we have to continue to be cautious in thinking about where we're going with respect to this disease. We might be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but we cannot know for sure that we are. We might be able to say that we're on our way to a return to normal, but we still cannot be utterly certain of that. Ongoing vigilance is still going to be necessary. The challenge for all of us is to live as near to normal as we can, as little based on fear as we can, while simultaneously being rational about the risks and challenges that lie ahead. Until the next time I speak to you, I guess I'm afraid we have to continue to be a little bit safe, We have to continue to be a little bit careful, and I really hope that we can all continue to be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Talladeh. And our showrunner is Sophie crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And if you like what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. It
2: all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder... Was it still possible
3: to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake
2: Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcasts show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.